0: From St. Louis Public Radio, this is St. Louis on the Air.
1: So to be an abolitionist um, in the 1830s was to invite a whole lot of trouble. was to be seen as a radical, to be seen as crazy, to be seen as fanatical and dangerous. And even in the North, mobs um, set upon abolitionists. They, they broke up meetings, they, they, uh, they attacked uh, abolitionist lecturers where they appeared in churches or meeting halls and, uh, and harassed them. And so um, to be an abolitionist in the 1830s was really quite brave, it was quite courageous.
0: I'm Sarah Fenske. Journalist Ken Ellingwood's gripping new book is a biography of a man shaped by St. Louis and martyred by an angry mob in Alton. It's the story of Elijah Lovejoy, who became a passionate abolitionist fighting to end slavery by printing the truth as he saw it, and his neighbors didn't want to hear it. And through that work, he became, in 1837, the first American journalist slain for his work. The book is titled, First to Fall, Elijah Lovejoy and the Fight for a Free Press in the Age of Slavery. And joining us today is its author, Ken Ellingwood. Ken, welcome.
1: Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me.
0: So, Ken, Elijah Lovejoy was trained as a minister, not a newspaper editor. What brought him from Maine to St. Louis?
1: He was um, a sort of a restless soul in Maine. He had been uh, a top student at what was called Waterville College, which is now Colby College in Waterville, Maine, and uh, wanted to go um, where he could you know, find, his, find his fortune, find his mission. He was raised in a religious family, and listened to a lot of religious uh, uh, professors at uh, Waterville College, and got this notion that going west uh, would be a place where he could, um, you know, perform God's work and also his own, um, you know, seek his own, his own, his own way. Uh, he didn't quite know what he would do out west, um, but uh, he set out, and he walked for much of the trip out to the Midwest, or what we now call the Midwest, which was then the really the frontier. Um, he arrived in St. Louis in the late 1820s, and he was first um, running a school and then turned to newspapering, but mm. a fairly conventional newspaper from the time. Uh, uh, the newspapers at the time were very partisan. They were very political, and his newspaper was a a a newspaper that favored the Whig Party. But at the time, he was still not terribly interested in slavery as an issue. He was more interested in classic uh, Whig versus Democrat politics, and Mm. he uh, used his newspaper for that purpose initially.
0: So how did his beliefs about slavery change um, during the years that he lived in St. Louis?
1: He, He became religious, uh, and that was a key link in his development uh, as an abolitionist. At the time there of the 1830s, there was a, a very powerful religious movement um, known as the second great awakening and it was happening all over the united states uh, it was an evangelical flowering if you will uh, a time when a lot of revival meetings were taking place and there was a change in the air in terms of christianity um, the old ideas of calvinism you know pre predestination mm-hmm. were giving way to this new notion that a person had something to say something to do in terms of Bringing about his or her own salvation and fighting sin, including the national sin of slavery, became a uh, a cause of a lot of evangelicals of the time. Mm-hmm. And Lovejoy was no different. He got he he got into the anti-slavery movement primarily through uh, his religion. Uh, he went to Princeton Theological Seminary after. Uh, a couple of years as a newspaper editor in St. Louis, he uh, became a minister, and then he moved back to the back to the to the frontier, back to St. Louis, uh, with a with a twin mission. He was going to be a minister, but he was also asked to edit a religious newspaper, and that was called the St. Louis Observer. And it was that newspaper that became his vehicle for. Uh, Writing about all kinds of views that he had, and one of the one of the issues that became more and more important to lovejoy as time went on was was the issue of slavery and I think what one of the things that affected him very deeply was what he saw happening around him in Missouri and in St. Louis where uh, you know steamboats were headed uh, south down the Mississippi River carrying slaves uh, into the south mm-hmm. and there were slaves around him in St. Louis there was very abusive treatment of of enslaved people around him in St. Louis, and in and in Missouri in general, and he was deeply affected by that. But you know, Lovejoy wasn't a fire-breathing abolitionist from the start. He was a really an accommodationist. He was a, he favored a gradual form of emancipation. He looked down on many of the more militant abolitionists back east, like uh, William Lloyd Garrison. But as time went on his views changed and he became more radicalized with his with with more time along the frontier and more radicalized as he became a target of those uh, pro-slavery forces that wanted him to stop publishing about slavery.
0: So the, the abolitionists, this is something that I was not fully aware of until going in depth in your book. And, and you did such a good job of, of sorting, helping us understand these various factions. I'd always thought of them as, as just being against slavery. At the time, this was a much more loaded label. As you say, This was this was considered a pretty radical group. And even a lot of people who would have claimed that they were anti-slavery, would not have been willing to consider themselves an abolitionist.
1: Yeah, that's very true. And I and I learned a lot more about it in, 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 doing, in doing the book. You know, people, it, after the fact, everybody's an abolitionist, right? Everybody's mm-hmm. against slavery. But of course, that that wasn't true. Um, in, in the 1830s, we're still very early in what we would call an organized abolition movement. It was a very radical thing at the time to be an abolitionist. That is, and it meant different things to different people. Um, some people were in favor of immediate uh, immediate emancipation, freeing the slaves, no compensation to owners, and even favoring equal rights um, with whites. Uh, that was a view held by uh, people like Garrison in, in Boston. Lovejoy was not in that crowd. He was very slow to embrace the term abolition. He repeatedly denied that he was an abolitionist for years and said no. You know, he he favored a more a more moderate or gradual course toward eventually reaching uh, freedom for slaves, but he was um, very uh, you know accommodating toward slave owners in his early years. He he believed that slave owners really had to be the ones who made that decision on their own. Uh, that 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 the slave states. Um, had the rights to decide whether or not slavery existed in their in their jurisdictions Mm. and so to be an abolitionist um in the 1830s was to invite a whole lot of trouble and that included being in the north you know we we have this idea that in the north everybody was against slavery and 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 supported you know emancipation in the south it was quite different well that's not really true i mean in the north there was a great deal of support uh, at least for maintaining this delicate marriage between North and South, which depended, you know, in great part on the idea that the Southern states could could you know could pursue their own fate and and pursue their own um, their own treatment of of slavery, and to be an abolitionist even in the North was often to invite um, you know hatred was was to be seen as a radical to be seen as crazy. Mm-hmm. to be seen as fanatical and dangerous, and even in the North, mobs um, set upon abolitionists. They, they broke up meetings, they, they, um, they attacked uh, abolitionist lecturers where they appeared in churches or meeting halls, and, uh, and harassed them. And so um, to be an abolitionist in the 1830s was really quite brave, it was quite courageous
0: you had just such interesting passages in this book writing about these people that were going after the abolitionists you write that anti-abolitionists quote saw themselves as enforcers of the majority's will during a time of flux and that they saw the use of violence against anti-slavery activists quote as a form of of nuisance abatement to maintain the community's living standards Mm -hmm. and so up north you have these abolitionists being harassed, this took an even more um, severe uh, uh, I'm missing a word here. Um, In the South, basically, they were trying to censor any talk of any of this, and it was fascinating to hear about some of the laws that were passed. Tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, it was one of the things, um, Sarah, that I I was most surprised about when I I really dug into this story. I I initially started focusing on lovejoy, and then, of course, I kind of zoomed out far, you know, wider and wider to see what was the context in which he lived and in which he was trying to publish this newspaper. And I realized, well, he wasn't alone. He he wasn't the only newspaper editor who was opposed to slavery and who was, you know, facing the problem of mobs. But as I, you know, as I sort of panned even wider, um, what emerged was uh, was surprising to me, and I think it would shock a lot of Americans today to learn the degree to which the South. And slavery forces in the South, but also with their allies in the North, attempted to essentially smother all uh, criticism of slavery, mm-hmm. to smother any debate about slavery, and and that took a, a, a formal um, shape in the in the way of uh, laws that were passed in the South uh, against printing, publishing anything that could be seen as being quote-unquote incendiary, that could be seen as promoting quote-unquote servile insurrection, that is, anything that might encourage enslaved people to rise up against their their enslavers, and uh, and even to the um, U.S. Congress, where uh, the House of Representatives passed a rule known as the Gag Rule in the 1830s that prevented any discussion of slavery in the halls of Congress. Mm. Um, That was, you know, it's just stunning to consider the degree to which uh, the United States in this era was essentially prevented from discussing the most fundamental flaw that it contained, which is the enslavement of a whole class of people. The, the, uh, The suppression regime, as I call it in the book, um, extended you know to the postal system where um, postmasters were seizing bags full of abolitionist literature and journals that were being mailed into the south and just seizing bags of, of of mail and burning them, not letting them reach you know not letting them reach people. So it was it was a multifaceted campaign to prevent you know talk of slavery, and that took a more informal shape. Um, in in uh, in the north, in particular, with mobs, violent mobs that just acted to you know try to, to, to try to prevent people like Lovejoy from raising the issue of slavery in public.
0: And so this is the context that Elijah Lovejoy—he's there in a slave state in Missouri, publishing this newspaper that was increasingly, vehemently, publicly anti-slavery, and even then finally crosses over the line I think to become an abolitionist newspaper. Um, Ken, I think it's safe to say he was hounded out of St. Louis. Would you characterize it that way?
1: You know, absolutely, he was he was hounded out of St. Louis. I mean, he he as his as his columns became more and more daring, you know, more and more um, uh, strident in criticizing slavery. Um, And it was visible to everybody around him. It was visible to his neighbors. It was visible to others in St. Louis and elsewhere in Missouri that this guy was crossing the line. He was threatening their 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 business ties with the deeper south. He was threatening to you know upset the 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 sort of stability of uh, of life there by by injecting this um this discussion of slavery into the community. And increasingly, people were, you know, whispering and talking about what what are we going to do with this guy? They tried to shut his newspaper down uh, more than once in St. Louis. And eventually, he finally decided that he would leave. But the you know sort of crowning uh, uh, the farewell to him was that a mob um, attacked his newspaper office and you know threw all of his belongings into the river. And he was able to salvage his press and get it across the river to Alton in Illinois. Uh, but he was he was chased out of he was chased out of out of St. Louis. And um, and there's no question about that. You know, he was he was uh, he was harassed for months, and threatened, and you know he had a he had a he had a wife and a and a small child, and he was quite worried about what would happen to to all of them.
0: We need to take a quick break, but we'll be back shortly to continue this conversation with Ken. This is St. Louis on the air on St. Louis Public Radio. Welcome back. My guest today is Ken Ellingwood. His new book is First to Fall, Elijah Lovejoy and the Fight for a Free Press in the Age of Slavery. This is just a terrific book. Um, and Elijah Lovejoy, hounded out of St. Louis, ends up in Alton. Ken, Alton ultimately didn't offer any greater protection than Missouri did for what Elijah Lovejoy was trying to do. Was that in part his fault? Could he have maybe finessed this situation now that he was no longer within a slave state?
1: Well, you know, I think he thought he, w- he was going to finesse the situation a little bit better than happened. You know, Illinois at the time was a free state, right? So he was going ostensibly to a place where uh, you know, he was he would be free to talk about slavery. But as he put it at the time to people who were in Alton, wondering kind of with a bit of skepticism or even suspicion about his motives, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> he believed that why does he he doesn't really need to talk about slavery so much in Illinois because it's you know it's a free state and he, it's no longer around him. And he tried to put people at ease by saying, "I don't really I don't have as much need to talk about slavery. So you know, relax. I'm not going to bring trouble here." some people believe that he was telling them making a promise to them that he wouldn't write about slavery in his newspaper Uh, he insisted and his friends insisted that he never said such a made such a promise he never said that he would keep the newspaper uh, clear of any talk of slavery and um... he he as he got established as he um... you know grew his newspaper in alton and found more subscribers there uh... he over a few over the over the next year, um, where you know his life would eventually end, uh, over over the first period of months, he uh, slowly uh, began to talk more and more about slavery. Mm-hmm. Could he have uh, stayed quiet? I'm, he he could have, but that wasn't really Lovejoy. He was a person who spoke his mind. He was self certain to a fault. Uh, he was a scolding (laughs) presence. You know, he was somebody who uh, saw something that he thought was wrong and he, and he piped up about it, whether that, whether that was about, you know, uh, not observing the Sabbath um, as, is the way the Bible, um, you know, instructed, or whether it was uh, drinking alcohol or whether it was um, slavery. Hmm. And he uh, found his, found himself in much the same position in Alton as he had in St. Louis which is uh, with a lot of people around him wishing he would just shut up and he did not.
0: You have a great scene in this book where he faces down this angry group of business leaders in Alton who wanted to strip him of his newspaper. He has so many wonderful things he says in this speech. Um, He says, I do not admit that it is the business of this assembly to decide whether I shall or shall not publish a newspaper in the city. I have a right to do it. What I wish to know is whether you will protect me in the exercise of this right. They did not do that. Um, And he kind of saw this coming. He said, the contest has commenced here and here it must be finished. If I fall, my grave shall be made in Alton. By refusing to give up, was he basically signing his death warrant?
1: I think he was ready. I think he, he had been ready. Uh, he, in his letters to his relatives back in Maine, even a year earlier, he referred to um, the possibility that 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 he could die in his opposition to slavery. And so I think by the time he made this speech that you just referred to, which was truly a a very gripping um, scene, very close to the end of his of his f- you know failed battle against the pro-slavery forces. Um, he He was accepting the reality that by continuing to insist on publishing the newspaper, this is after, he He mobs had destroyed his press in Alton several times. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think he was aware that uh, this was, you know, uh, going to be a fight a fight to the death. and he was prepared to make it. And the other thing that's very um, telling about the about that speech that you just referred to and read some from is that, you know, initially he started off as as a as a preacher, and he was talking about slavery and moral sin and all of that as time went on he became much more or i should say equally an opponent of any uh, attempts to curb freedom of the press Mm. so just as much as he was an abolitionist he became equally a very strong advocate for freedom of the press to the point where the two causes became you know you know, entwined. They became the same cause, really. It was a cause of liberty. And um, and there was very little difference between them in his mind. And mm-hmm. he was fighting both causes at the end.
0: You write, uh, again, I quote, in a strict sense, no one would be punished for Lovejoy's death or the destruction of his press, nor of the firebombing of Gilman's warehouse. But that's not fully true. And you argue that Alton itself paid the price for what this mob did to this, this newspaper man. How so?
1: Well, Alton in the 1830s had this grand ambition that it was going to usurp St. Louis uh, as the as the sort of you know queen of the West, as this as the powerhouse on the Mississippi. It had uh, links to, links to the north. It had links to to the east. Uh, there was a you know a railroad being built, a national highway being built. And Alton had these grand um, visions of itself as being this the, even a, m- a more important um, hub than St. Louis, which of course to St. Louis was ridiculous. Uh, St. <laughs> Louis had long established itself as a big trading post and and a major you know center for movement both along the river south, but also to the west, right to the to the to, to the southwest. Um, after this uh confrontation you know after lovejoy's killing after the mobs um attack on on his press presses and the um and the firebombing of the of the warehouse where lovejoy made his last stand the the fate of of alton really fell and there, there was already suffering an economic downturn that year uh, there was the, uh, it was called The Panic of, eight, of 1837. It was a widespread economic panic, but it hit Alton very hard and sort of sent it into a, into a uh, downward spiral mm-hmm. from which it never really recovered. Some of the leading figures who were in this Lovejoy story ended up leaving Alton. They moved out altogether. Some of his allies, some of his you know, foes, um, sort of some of the leading characters left. Alton didn't die out. Um, Alton still exists today but it was never uh, able again to sort of achieve the status that it believed it would have when dreamers in the 1830s envisioned this you know new um, economic powerhouse.
0: Hmm. Well, Ken, I just enjoyed this book so much. I cannot recommend this biography more highly. And I'm just very curious, in our last couple minutes, um, you're not from this area, and you are not a trained historian. You're, you're a journalist with a lot of experience. But what got you into this story in particular?
1: You know, I, I was... I was teaching, after a, a long career at the LA Times, I was teaching in China uh, at, a, at a Chinese university, of all things, uh, at the journalism school at a very progressive Chinese university called Nanjing University. And I introduced the class, I was teaching a class on the history of American journalism. I introduced Lovejoy, kind of as a throwaway part of a unit on abolitionism and, and the press. And the reaction that they had to Lovejoy's story just Blew me away. I was really surprised at how sort of how uh, how much impact they seemed to feel from it. They were really moved by his story, and it got me thinking. Like, there's a really a great story in this. I wonder, you know, what more I can do with it. Mm-hmm. And I really started digging into the story, and it was it took you know several years of of research. On my trips back to the states, I would spend summers uh, in the archives and in various places. And um, from Maine to um, you know to Illinois to Ohio, uh, I found a great treasure trove of documents online and, at, at Texas Tech University, and just really dug into it. It's a it's to me as a journalist, and not as a trained historian, but just as a journalist, I, it just. Uh, struck me as just a hell of a story. And I wanted to tell it in a way that we tell stories today.
0: Well, and you've done that. This book is so good. And Ken Ellingwood, I want to thank you so much for joining us today and and sharing just a little bit of the many wonderful details within it.
1: Well, just thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: St. Louis on the Air is a production of St. Louis Public Radio. (music) Understanding starts here.